If you would, turn in your Bible to 1 John. 1 John, and we'll be in chapter 1 this morning. If you're a first-time guest with us here this morning, I'm certainly glad that you're here. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. So thankful that you are here with us this morning. 1 John chapter 1. Some people wonder why I even bother putting one of these things on in the morning. Paul Washer rightly states that your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth. And I think he's right in that assertion. Truth isn't always popular. It's not always comfortable. But it is what is always best. The great theme of, of truth, of the truth of this text, funnels down to the reality that our joy can be found in Christ alone. And that having fellowship with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, is what brings lasting joy to any human being. And John wants us, in this text, he wants to encourage those who have come to know, listen, friends, I think one of the most dangerous things about being a Christian is coming to this complacent point where you say, yeah, I know the Gospel. Oh, I pray that we don't have that attitude. Uh, what, what John is doing is he's leaning into people who have heard the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he wants their joy to be full. And as we walk and live our Christian lives, John knows that there are things that come into our lives that will seek to rob us of true and lasting joy, and he's pushing back against those things. And he seeks to draw us close to God that we would know God for who He truly is and that we would love Him for who He is. That we would not come to the conception of who God is and create for ourselves an idol that might satisfy us in a moment, but who will leave us without joy throughout eternity. No, John wants us to have a right conception of God, even if it's a difficult one, that we might have real, lasting joy. And what we learned last week is that if we're going to have lasting joy, we must start with God, not with ourselves. We must begin from a position of looking to God in reverence, in fear, in trembling. And we must always start in considering who God is. We must start with what God reveals about Himself throughout the pages of Scripture. The Bible speaks clearly on the nature and the attributes of who God really is. Apart from the apostles and prophets, apart from the Word of God, we would have no true understanding of who God is. Now, we would have conceptions of who God is. We can look around the globe today and see in different societies people who have never been given the Word of God, and we, are a, we should be a grateful nation that we have the Word of God. And we look around the world and we see that people have a conception that there is a God, but they don't have a clear understanding of who that God is because they don't have the Word of God. Can I tell you this this morning? I believe there are vestiges of who God is truly in some parts of the American church, but largely we are losing the Word of God and so we are losing the true conception of who God is in our gatherings as well. 
And it's just as easy for Christian religionists, charlatans, to get into a pulpit and create fake idols as it is for a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever else. So we must stay near the Word if we are going to conceive of who God is. And so John is doing us a tremendous favor when he writes in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we're going to take our walk with God seriously, we must consider two things. We must consider the nature of God, and that's why John is saying here in verse 5 that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That He is holy. That He is light. That there's not a spot or blemish or wrinkle or hint of sin or unrighteousness in Him. In Him there is no darkness at all. And as we learned last week, not only is there no darkness, there's no capacity for darkness to ever enter in. God is pure light, pure holiness, and there is no possibility of unrighteousness. So if we're going to worship the one true living God, we can't come with our colloquial understandings of who He is. We must come and understand the person of Christ of God the Father, of God the Holy Spirit, and what the Bible has to say, and that is that He is light and that in Him dwells no darkness. Secondly, if we're to have fellowship, real delight and joy in God, we must also know something about ourselves. If we're going to have truly true true fellowship with a holy God, we have to have clarity about who that God is. See, if we were to trust in our own intuition at this point, And we were to look and see even rightly that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Then in our own conception, we might come away and say, well, then naturally we must be righteous in our own strength too. We must be moral. We must be good. We must be holy in our own capacity. In fact, entire uh, religious movements bend in that direction. There's entire groups of people who think in their own strength and by their own power they can attain some sense of being holy the way that God is holy. All evidence to the contrary. Thank God that John doesn't leave us there. Thank God that John doesn't say in God is light. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And then he pivot, would pivot to us and say now you in your own strength by your own merit and your own ability your own religious goodness, you must be holy as well. Thank God that He doesn't say that. Because we would all be bankrupt this morning and heading to hell. John, in fact, does not stop in dealing with our character. He does deal with the fact that there there should be a walking in the light. He does deal with the character of a believer. And we'll get to that more in days to come. But he also deals with our limitations, with our imperfections, with the reality of who we are. What John deals with here is an all too unpopular reality, and that is the reality of the doctrine of sin. And when I say that the doctrine of sin is unpopular, it really has been unpopular in the flesh and in the confrontation of humanity since the fall. But I think in Christian circles, it's only been in the past 150 years that a clear declaration of the doctrine of sin that has fallen into disapproval. 
And yet, is there not? I think the doctrine of sin is the most empirically provable doctrine in all of Scripture. I mean, you're looking at one great example of the doctrine. And I've got 150 illustrations sitting in front of me this morning. No offense. The reality is, though, beloved, that our whole understanding of the Bible rises and falls on these two doctrines. The doctrine of the holiness of God and the doctrine of the sinfulness of man. And if you erase those two doctrines, you take the entirety of what God is speaking to humanity with it. Now this doctrine may be uncomfortable, but it's not unclear. Some will at this point say, yes, Jay, yes. We know that we are somewhat sinful. But you know, I, I really know some nice people. I have some neighbors that have done some great things for me. We, we see in our society all the time human beings doing nice things for their neighbor. And then jumping on the news so they can get the credit. And that may be your experience. And in my experience, I've, I've had people do very nice and kind things for me too. But we don't live by experience, do we, Christian? We live according to the Word of God. And Paul has not been unclear when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. He makes a clear, and I know I've harped on this, and for the rest of my life I will. We were not part of the darkness. We didn't have darkness in us. We, we, we weren't composed of constituent parts of some good, some bad. We were the darkness, period. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Many of you will know this verse. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our sin has tainted even the best thing that we will ever do. In, in, in the economy of God's holiness, the best thing, the most selfless, devoted, caring, considerate act that you ever do for your fellow man or towards God without the blood of Christ applied to it is nothing more than a damnable act. Really, if we come to verses 5-10, through 10, there are these two constituent components and John spends most of his time on one side. He begins with the declaration that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. The, the holiness of God. And then he pivots. And if we were to encapsulate all of what he is saying in verses 6-10, through 10, we might speak of man this way. Man is darkness. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the meritorious redeeming works of Christ in man is no light at all. You take verse 5 and the holiness of God and you pivot to man and everything changes. Man is darkness and in him, apart from God, is no light at all. And somebody will rise up and say, yeah, but. Beloved, if you read through the first chapter of John's Gospel, you will see that Jesus was the one true light 
coming into the world. And any time that you stand and try to argue against the doctrine of total or radical depravity by interjecting in the goodness of man, you are ignoring the reality of what John is saying, and that is there is one true light, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is darkness, and apart from the work of God in him is no light at all. And again, many objections will be raised, but we need to be careful not to raise objections that come from our own thinking and our own generation or our own religious background. If we are going to raise objections against a doctrine, we must do it from Scripture. Some will come and call the doctrine of sin total depravity, radical depravity, an outdated, outmoded doctrine. They will say, we, we really, this has been overused. It, it, it's constraining. It holds men back from being all that they were created to be. And if we just rah-rah each other into loving one another, really that's all we need to know about. We don't need to know about sin. That's the negative. Don't speak on this. Somebody should have gotten the message to John. And he should have spent... He should have spent the bulk of his time dealing with the holiness of God and just in passing thought mentioned the sin of man. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that because this is an unpopular reality. Some will say, listen, God is not out to get us. His wrath is really not against humanity. God is not harsh. And to some degree I say you're right. It's humanity that is putting itself, we put ourselves in the place of the wrath of God. God doesn't have to push us into a place of rebellion. He's never done that. He's never authored evil. We do that ourselves. Some will then say, yeah, Jay, but what about the really good people that have never heard the gospel? You know those people in the remote recesses of Africa who have never heard the gospel? And they're really moral people. And they, they really do want to know God, but nobody's ever brought them the Gospel. So if they respond to the light that is presented to them through creation, will God not save them apart from Christ? To that I say this morning, yeah, well, what about Sasquatch? Because we're talking in categories that do not exist. There are not people out there somewhere that have never heard the gospel that are good. There are people who are dying in their sins. Do you know why we have no urgency for missions anymore? Because we have no foundational understanding of the doctrine of sin. Because we don't understand its pervasiveness. We don't understand its radical nature. We don't understand its consequence. It's also why we don't have a desperation for the grace of God. The reason why, as Brian mentioned, the doctrines of grace, and some people will ridicule those doctrines, I believe that we start with the doctrine of radical depravity, and only when we understand that doctrine do we have an appreciation for the grace that God has poured out on us lavishly apart from anything in us. It takes human pride to concoct a view of the doctrine of sin where we're marginally okay. Would you this morning, beloved, 
Stand at the foot of the cross that we sang about earlier and look into the face of your Savior and say, you know, we were somewhat sinful, but it's really not all that bad. I hope that would break you to do that. And yet, in so many pulpits, in so many ways, the doctrine of sin and radical depravity is attacked because it is an unpopular doctrine. Because the pastor will lose his job. Because the church will dwindle. Because whatever the consequence. But beloved, can I tell you this? I believe not having a good functional understanding of the doctrine of the radical depravity of man has led the church to the weak point that she is in today, this very moment. And we see sin as our overwhelming problem. Beloved, these two things happen naturally. We will have an overwhelming sense of our need for grace. And we will also have an overwhelming desire to tell the entire world about the gracious God that has saved us. Again, the church is weak this morning because she has failed to have in her preaching and her witness a functional, healthy understanding of these two truths. That God is holy that in Him is no darkness at all. And that man is sinful. And in Him, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, is no light at all. With that in mind, would you do honor to the reading of God's Holy Word? Stand to your feet this morning. Ooh, I think we could stop there and go home. But that would kill my fun. And there's so much more that we need to see. John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who was created and sustains at this very moment even the breath that I have to read this text. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. This is the Word of God to us today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence and we ask that You would write these truths on all of our hearts that we would not err in our understanding of the doctrine of sin. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. John, being a good teacher, knows that repetition is a, is a, a good instrument. And so here, he, he sees the problem clearly, even in the first century church, a lack of understanding of our relationship to a holy God and our sinful, depraved state. And so he deals with this by addressing three common errors when it comes to the doctrine of sin. And he uses this phrase three different times to speak to the doctrine of sin. He says, if we say, in verse 6, if we say, verse 8, if we say, verse 10, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we say, verse 10, 
that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. As you see in the, on the screen behind me, some would argue, and I think it's, in, it, it, it's without controversy, that this is a chiastic structure. If you look at the lines coming down, many of you that have been here before, we've explained that that forms kind of the leading edge of an X, or the chi, or key, as however you want to pronounce it, in the Greek alphabet. And so the, the way that the authors during this time would write is to put in, in a chiastic structure the point of the text at the fulcrum, at the center. So verse 8 being the key, and we'll get to this later, of the text. Ultimately, the issue of sin is, is rooted in who we are. And that is what John is driving at. But before he gets there, he wants to nail down Something about the doctrine of sin and an error that generally creeps in to our thinking. And that first thing is this in verse 6. That we fail to realize the nature of sin in general. He says if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. We should say this morning. In fact, John says in verse 4... That we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then in verse 3, that that joy is rooted in the fellowship that we have with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we are Christians, we are people that say we have fellowship with God. There's no other way to be a Christian but to make a public assertion that I identify with Christ and I have fellowship, communion with Him on an ongoing way. But if you say that and you still walk in the darkness, you are lying and do not practice the truth. John is rather bold and unapologetic in what he's saying, isn't he? He doesn't say, well, maybe. Maybe maybe you can walk in darkness consistently in your life and it's no big deal. Hard stop. He says, if you walk in darkness, but say you have fellowship, you're lying. Saying if you claim to have fellowship with God, but walk in a way that is contrary to everything that is in God, then you have misunderstood the basic nature of what sin is. If you say that you love God and walk with Him, yet you walk according to the dictates and the feelings and the system of this world, you are lying. And you are often not just deceiving others, you are self-deceived. You see, there's a great error that comes into our minds when we talk about sin. And it's this, beloved. When we talk about sin, I think what we often, first and primarily, conceive in our own brain is sin as the particular acts that we commit against God or against neighbor. That's not less than that. But what what John is speaking about here is much more than that. It's not the individual actions that he's pointing at. What he is pointing at is an entire realm, an entire kingdom, an entire dominion, an entire way of thinking about life. And what he is saying is that there is a way that you can say that you belong to Christ, but you really live according to a different kingdom. You live according to a different system. You live according to the fallen world, not according to the new work that God is doing in all of those that belong to Him. You see, the Bible tells us of a great spiritual battle that is going on. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Those verses give you a picture of what he is talking about in walking in darkness in this realm of being lost. Verse uh, 12 of chapter 6, he goes on to say that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. If you say that your fellowship, that you have fellowship with God and yet you walk according to the flesh, according to this world, according to this realm, according to this dominion that is lost, You are lying to yourself. That's an uncomfortable, unpopular truth, but it's there that some who are self-deceived into believing that they're Christians but aren't actually would come to true repented faith in Christ. You see, what, what, what John is aiming at here is the grand narrative of redemption that God made the world perfect. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And they were, they were created righteous with an inclination towards holiness. So God does all things good and in order. But man, listening to Satan, fell. And now the entire world is plunged into sin. The entire thing, from beginning to end, is tainted with the reality of sin, with the reality of depravity. Every person that is born into this life is born a sinner. Now my daughter challenged that doctrine in my life greatly until the second week that we had her and then I had to concede that even she was sinful. We're not talking about subjective. This is why we get off on the doctrine of sin. Why we, we err in in. in understanding the doctrine of sin because we compare and think of sin in relationships to the acts that people do either for or against us and we need to begin to understand sin in light of how man relates to God period and what the Bible teaches us is not that man is somehow sick with sin but that the entirety of the whole human race after Adam has been plunged neck deep into sin and there is only one way that she will ever be, that humanity will ever be redeemed that the bride of Christ will ever be redeemed and that is through the meritorious work of Christ on the cross everything beloved in this world is opposed to God and if you say you have fellowship with him and you say yeah but I don't think that's true then whose system are you living in light of? Whose reality are you using to paint the way that you think about the world around you? Walking in darkness then doesn't mean just walking in a list of bad sins. I'm afraid that for far too often in some places we read, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk and then we fill in the list of all of the big Baptist sins that we've come up with, you know, the things that your mama used to maybe smack you on the back of the head for when you were sitting in the church pew or she told you not to do those things. That's not what, what John is talking about here. probably includes those things, just so I don't upset your moms. Um, but it's much more than that. It's an, 
entire system. It's a way of saying, you know what, I'm going to live for God, but I'm going to live for God according to what the world has to say. And I would argue this morning, and I think I'm on solid ground, that the majority of the American church is living her Christian life that way today. And what this text says is that means she's not saved at all. Not popular, but I believe true. God, help us not to look at this text and think of just a a list of sins that we can vindicate ourselves for. Help us to see that this is an entire way of looking at the world and if we are not working in opposition to stay out of that mindset, far too often we will fall into it. You know, if, if you are living... In the world system, often this is the first thing that really sticks out. And it's so rampant throughout the church. Saying that you have fellowship with God, but walking in the darkness often manifests itself in this. I don't like to think of God as a righteous judge who will pour out His wrath upon unrepentant sinners for all of eternity. I would prefer to think of God as an individual kind of like a big grandpa in the sky who lovingly looks down and just is ready to dismiss all of the sin of the world and is is willing to overlook all of what I have done in my life against His name. That is living your life according to the world system. Because the reality is that God will execute perfect justice against all unrighteousness. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all and He will tolerate no darkness. And this is why we need a Savior. This is why we need Christ. You see, walking according to the darkness is an entire worldview. And in fact, John goes on in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 to kind of aim at this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. And John is saying this morning, be careful church that you don't have a vain profession that you know God while continuing to walk according to this world. Walking in the darkness is a life of ignoring the light that has come into the world. God is light and He acts as light. If you are in Christ, His light will be evident through you. You see, we show whose we are by how we live, by what we do. And failure to realize that the nature of sin is a systemic overriding problem throughout the entire cosmos, throughout the entire world will ultimately lead you to live a life that is at disunity with God, that is not in fellowship with Him. Sin is an entire dominion, an entire system opposed to God. Don't live your life close to the world. Live your life close to Christ. The second thing then, the second error is a failure to realize our own sinful nature. Verse 8, and this is, I believe, the point. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, there's a major emphasis here. That there is something that we need to wake up this morning and see clearly in this text. John doesn't say this morning, Brian, 
If you say that you have no sins, plural, you're lying to yourself. That's not what he says. He says if you say you have no sin, singular, he's not talking about the individual deeds yet. He's talking about a nature that is in each one of us. He's talking about an overall disposition of who we are as fallen human beings. It is sin, not sins, plural. He's talking about who we are. He's not aiming at the fruit outcome of our sins. He's aiming at the root cause of the sins. And that is our sinful inclination. There is, he's saying, a continual influence in you, brother or sister in Christ, that will seek to draw you away from Christ. That there is something in you that is opposed to God. There is an entire system outside of you, yes, but don't be fooled. It is not that system that is your biggest enemy. He makes the point of this chiastic structure. The real problem dwells in you. Boy, there's an unpopular truth. I much would prefer to live a life blaming everybody else. But do you not see the love of God coming into the world to speak these truths through His apostles and prophets? Is this, that He wants you to know that the problem is in you so that you might come to Him for redemption. You see, this emphasis is addressing really the faulty teaching of the Gnostics. And here's, just to be clear, Gnosticism is such a nebulous teaching. There's not one clear false teaching. It's just everything that was heretical around his day and age and has popped up throughout the centuries against the church is really what he is addressing. And these Gnostics in his day would say, well listen, the Christians say that they have been delivered from the sinful nature, which is true. And so because he has a new nature, then nothing that he does in the body really matters. We can do whatever we please because sin is bound in our flesh and ultimately our bodies are going to die. They're going to decay. So we can live, live large and do whatever we want. It doesn't matter to God. And this is a, an entire way of thinking that's called antinomianism or against the law. And it is what John is writing in opposition to. He's saying, listen, that is a faulty way of thinking and you need to see that your root problem isn't only the acts. He's so wise because he doesn't get into an argument about the individual sins first. Now he's going to deal with that in a second. But he deals with the root cause. And he points to why Jesus had to come to ransom us from our sinful disposition. He says, this is the underlying cause that you have indwelling sin in your life. If we say that we have no nature of sin, that we really are okay, that we're just sin sick, but not radically depraved, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To say that you don't have a sinful nature is a self-deception. And there are entire theological church movements that are built around this. I'm not attacking individuals, but... The Nazarene church teaches that you can attain sinless perfection in this life. And to that, John would say, if you say that you have no sin, that you, this side of heaven, have no sinful nature, well, then you deceive yourselves and the truth isn't in you. The question that we must ask, John says, is not have I sinned? That's not the question. That one's so obvious. Let's not start there. 
question is, what causes the sin? What led you to the actions that you've committed? What made you think of it? Here's the reality that I want to drill in really clearly this morning. There's this whole conception, and it's really a heretical, man-centered philosophy that you don't find in the pages of Scripture, and it's free will. Adam and Eve had it. No one else in human history has. Because we all have a sinful, depraved nature. And in that sinful nature, it influences every one of the decisions that we make. And apart from the work of the Spirit of God coming into our lives to restrain that and to grow us in the image of Christ, we would continually rebel against God. Now, I, don't, I know that's going to raise questions. We have volition. We choose. We make decisions. We have autonomy in a sense. That is true. But ultimately, our will is now sold in bondage to our nature. And that is the problem that the Apostle John is holding before you this morning. If you say you have no sinful nature, you are deceiving yourselves. And you really have no evidence to make the argument either. I think Paul points to this reality in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Aren't we so good at rationalizing who we are and kind of putting lipstick on the pig? Like, like convincing ourselves, well, I'm really not that bad. Then you really didn't need Jesus. Because you really are that bad. The excuses that we make often are so inviting to us as individuals. But everyone around us can see that they're nothing more than self-deceptions. And here, John is being our best friend and he's speaking truth and he's saying, no, the problem really is in you. And man doesn't want to deal with the fact, not only of sin, but of his nature. This whole doctrine of radical depravity, of total depravity, is one that has been argued throughout the past 500 years, and I would argue all throughout church history, to varying levels. I want you to think about which side of the argument you would be on in context of this text. Now, listen, I'll, I'll illustrate for you right now how depraved we are. We like to cherry pick the truth of God's Word, don't we? We like to pick the verses that we really make us feel good about us, and let's ignore the rest. What is one of the most widely used verses in all of Christendom in America? John 3.16. Wonderful verse. It says nothing about who actually the means of coming to Christ. It's a declaration that all who do come will be saved. And we all agree with that. Amen? But just a couple of verses later in John 3.19. And maybe you'll wonder why it is that this is tattooed on the back of a football helmet and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil you see the reality is we don't want the gospel to shine a light into our lives to point out the fact that we are radically depraved people who have no hope of redemption apart from the working of Christ in us we don't want that. We want a religion where we can add part of our works. Where we can come to God and say, thank you for bringing me halfway. Let me 
fill in the blanks. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. The Word of God is like light. And the Spirit shines that light as we read it and it's illuminated into our lives. And for those of us in Christ, we have nothing to do but cry out, God save me from my sin. So not only do we fail to see the general nature of the system of sin, the world in darkness as a dominion, we also fail to see our own sinful, radically depraved nature. And that leads to the final thing. We've, we fail to realize that we are sinners in need of God's forgiving grace. And that it is only by His power that we would ever come to Him. John gets to sins in this last verse, verse 10. He says, yes, there's a problem of the fallen world of sin, absolutely. And there is this problem of our natures being sinful. But there is also the very real and pressing problems that you, friend, have committed acts of sin and those acts deserve punishment and you are the one that will have to bear the penalty of those sins unless there is a wrath-bearing sacrifice in your place. And when we come to that reality and we look at Jesus and we see that throughout the course of human history there has not been another to stand between God and man and He is the only one qualified to bear the wrath of God and live. Then we cry out, God, save me. God, give me grace. Cover my sins. Hide me in Christ. I increasingly prefer when we talk about salvation, not asking people if they're saved. Not that that's a horrible phrase, but it's been so misused. I like using the phrase, are you in Christ? Because it gives the picture of what we actually need. We need to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. We need the blood of Christ applied to our account that the wrath of God would pass over us. And what a joy it is that we know, according to the Word of God, that He has come to redeem us, to be the propitiation for our sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. There are people who will say, well, listen, I've always known God. I've always really been... I've always just thought God was great and I've always had this conception of God and I've really never had to deal with sin in my life. And so this Gospel that you're preaching, that's just too heavy, Jay. Now I want to make a distinction. I'm not talking about the people who really are humbled and know they're sinful and they just kind of can't work out the exact moment of their salvation because maybe God saved them when they were younger or whatever. I'm talking about the kind of people who have a religious attitude that they can have a relationship, that they can have fellowship with God and yet not deal with the reality of sin and a need for an atoning sacrifice. God help us in the church today. There are some who think that the atonement is an Old Testament doctrine and has nothing to do with the New Testament. But I promise you, the Lamb of God stands at the apex of the Bible to declare to us that we all need an atoning sacrifice. And the only effectual sacrifice for all of eternity is Christ Himself. And if you're one of those individuals, if you're one of those individuals that say, I can have fellowship with Jesus, I can have my Jesus, but I don't need to deal with sin, 
John stands this morning and says, cool story, bro. It just so happens that you make him a liar and that his word is not in you. If you don't see your need for repentance from sin, for forgiveness, for grace to wake you from spiritual death to spiritual life, His Word is not in you. It may be religion at work in you. It may be the propositions of men that is at work within you. But it is not the full effectual work of His Word that is alive in you. All of the Bible speaks, beloved, and this is really what John is saying about the plan of redemption. He doesn't the Bible is not about this fluffy feel-good relationship or fellowship with God. The Bible deals with the reality of our sinful depravity and our need for redemption. Jesus aimed in this direction in Mark chapter 2 when he said to the Pharisees who were just taken aback by this Jesus who would go have who would go have supper with, with sinners. And do you remember Christ's response to them? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The the doctrine of radical depravity is a dark reality and one that should cause us to fall on our face and cry out, woe is me. That is true. But it is the black background upon which Christ shines the greatest. It is the background upon which His grace is the most illustrious, the most beautiful, because it shows us that in spite of the darkness, wretched depravity in us, He has not fallen back from saving us. And Paul then goes on to work out what Jesus has just said in Mark chapter 2 in Romans chapter 3. He aims at the doctrine of sin in verses 10 through 18. None is righteous. In the peripheral of that verse is someone standing up and saying, yeah, but Paul. And so he goes on to say, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is, is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the doctrine of total depravity, of radical depravity in Paul's words. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul has just leveled the doctrine of total depravity before all generations. Why? So that everybody will shut up and realize that they need a Savior. I may not have, should have used the term shut up. So that everyone will be still before the Lord and realize that they need a Savior. So this doctrine may be weighty, but beloved, can I tell you this? If God has intervened in your life at some point as to get you to be quiet and realize that you need the grace of God, then you owe Him praise for all of eternity. Because can I tell you this? There will be a day, and I almost have to hold back weeping saying this, when many of our loved ones and friends and co-workers will look into the face of God and they will be silence knowing at that moment that they are sinners but it will be too late the reason that we want to be strong on our doctrine of sin is not because we hate people but because we love them 
and we would rather them be silenced in this life that they may sing with us and worship for all of eternity. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 21 through 24 to say, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all of those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, not as a word. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What John is saying when he says in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What he is saying is that if we fail to see that our greatest need is as a sinner in need of forgiveness, then what you are doing functionally is you are rejecting the entirety of the Bible. Because that's what the Word of God is about. That's what the, when, when, when Paul speaks of radical depravity in verses 10 through 18, he's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the Old Testament. So if you are going to disagree with this, then the Psalms, the Old Testament, Jesus, Paul, the apostles, they're all liars. And what turns out in that assessment is that God Himself is a liar. And so John says this is God's message to you. That you are a sinner in desperate need of the grace of Almighty God. Don't make Him out to be a liar. Cry out to Him for forgiveness. Know that not only has the whole world been engulfed in sin, not only are you by nature a child of wrath, but you need the forgiving grace of God. And if God is merciful to you and regenerates your heart so that you cry out in faith and repentance, you will be forgiven. But, but John is making a, a further argument. Some will say, well, here's the thing. I love you, Pastor Jay. And these aren't my arguments, so don't type to me. They're God's arguments. I love you, Pastor Jay, but I, I, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on the doctrine of sin. Fine. But just know when you agree to disagree on the doctrine of sin, then you're going to have to go on to agree to disagree on the doctrine of the Incarnation. Because there's no reason for Jesus to come into this world apart from our need for forgiveness. You're also going to have to disagree, agree to disagree about the doctrine of the Atonement. Of His sacrifice. You're going to have to take all of Christology and throw it on the ash heap of history. Because the doctrine of sin is, is tied to all of those doctrines. You will make every theologian that has walked with God a liar, and you will make God Himself to be a liar. So we want to come and we want to have a right understanding of the doctrine of sin. We, we want to agree with the Word of God. We want to not just say... We agree that we're sinners, but continue to walk in the world system. No, we want our entire view of this world to be aligned with what God's Word has to say. If I say that I'm a Christian, if I tell this world that I am a Christian, that I have fellowship with God, and yet I walk in darkness, John says, if, if that is you, but you walk in darkness, your testimony is a lie. You are pretending to be something that you are not. 
And more astonishing than that, if you say that you have no need for forgiveness, then you make God Himself out to be a liar. If you say that the doctrine of sin is not a big deal and not one that you need to pay attention to, you are laughing in the face of eternal love. You are minimizing the God of all creation giving His only begotten Son that whosoever believed upon Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. So it is clear. If you don't understand your radical depravity, you have no fellowship with God. If you say that you love God, but you don't come to Him for His grace and mercy as an atonement for your sins, then you are lying to yourself and others. And the light is not in you. The doctrine of sin is essential. I am a sinner by nature. I am in a sinful world. And that world needs the radical grace of Almighty God. And it's only then when we come to that point of saying the whole world is going to hell literally in a handbasket. And we each have a sinful nature. It is then and only then that we will be men and women who are willing to lay down our lives for the Gospel. If any person comes into this building and says that they want to be used of God, but they think lightly of sin, run from that person. Because functionally what they are telling you is they have no use for the Word of God. They have no conception of what the Word of God teaches. It is only when we receive a new nature, and I want you to see this, verse 8 is the pivotal point of everything. If we say that we have no sin nature, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But when we come to an understanding that we do have this sinful nature and we come to the glorious truth that the only way that nature can ever be changed is not by our volition, but by the sovereign act of an almighty God. And He gives us a new nature and we are a new creation in Christ. Then and only then can we, verse 7, walk in the light and verse 9, confess our sin. Isn't that fantastic? We have to get past the, 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 the depths of how difficult and unpopular the doctrine of sin is to see the reality that when we come to just level ourselves before God and say, it is only by Your grace that I could be saved. It is in that moment that we are starting to walk in the light and confess that it is by His grace alone that we might be saved. So here's the question. Are you walking in the light today. What is your hope, friend? Is your hope that you might be good enough in your own strength? Is your hope that God will just wink at your sin like some celestial grandfather? Is your hope that somehow, some way, according to human effort, you might be delivered from the death that we see so evident in this world? I hope not. I hope that you've come to understand that the whole world is plunged into sin and it's opposed to God and that you yourself have a nature that is prone to sin and that you need to cry out to God in repentance and faith. And when you see that, then and only then can you walk in the light and confess your sin and have it absolved. Beloved, I promise you that those, of, those who are before us, the church of history, who have died in Christ and are now with the Lord, those who are ahead of us had a robust doctrine of what it meant 
to be sinful. And in light of that, they answered the question of what their only hope was. And we've actually put it on the back of a t-shirt at LifePoint. But my hope is that in the years to come, it's more than something of just t-shirt material. That it's actually engraved on our hearts. The Heidelberg Catechism records the answer of so many fathers of the faith when asked what is, their only ho- what is our only hope in life and death? And the response, our only hope that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of, the fa- of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him, to walk in the light. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come this morning acknowledging the reality that even those of us in Christ err in our understanding of sin. That's why this passage had to be written. Father, might we bow our hearts to You today and acknowledge that the entire world as a system is opposed to You. Father, help us not walk according to that system. Father, we also acknowledge the reality of our sinful nature, of our propensity to sin against You, and it grieves us because of the work of Your Spirit in our hearts. Father, we come this morning acknowledging our sins, plural, and we ask that through the work of Christ and Christ alone, You absolve us of every one of them. We know that the wrath that You had reserved for our sins has been completely poured out upon Christ. Might we worship You now in light of that doctrinal truth. In Christ's name, Amen.